We are in 1 Peter chapter 4. We are close to the end of our study in the book of 1 Peter. Uh, it has been both a joy and a challenge to go through this book because so many of it, so much of this book is applicable to where we are in the world today. And sometimes it reminds us of the challenges that we face in the culture that we're in, and we're reminded constantly that we're exiles. We so often don't fit in because of the way that we choose to live or the way that we choose to obey God. And you, never, you, you should know that you're never actually going to feel at home in this world because your values are different, the things you love are different, the things that you do are different. When you're called to be a believer in Jesus Christ, all things change. That's why the Bible says all things are made new. You are brand new. You are born again. So if you feel like you don't fit in, welcome to the book of 1 Peter. This is why Peter writes to these folks that have just become believers, come out of a culture of paganism and hedonism and some pretty nasty stuff in the Roman Empire. They have been such a burden on Rome that Rome has kind of sent them away into these little communities so that they don't become, you know, congregated and become rabble-rousers. So they send them away and they, they hope to God that they'll stop converting other people. Nero is afraid of these Christians. He actually has burned down Rome and blamed it on the Christians. This is why we say Nero played the fiddle while Rome burned. This is where this came from. This first Peter is the beginning of a, a 200 year slot of incredible persecution against the church. And it all begins here. Peter is writing to all of these different exiles and he's saying to them, you guys are never going to feel like you fit in, but don't lose heart. That is the theme of the book of Peter. So for us, it's very applicable because I don't know about you, but so many times I'm thinking to myself, I feel like I don't fit into the world in which I live so often. Values are different. Love is different. The, the, the things that I, I choose to do with my time, different. And so often we feel like we don't fit in. Peter is writing to these, these exiles who have been scattered abroad through the Roman Empire, and he wants to prepare them for the fact that persecution might get harder. And he's right because it does. Because we look back on human history. He's looking forward, thinking to himself, I think it's going to get harder. And God is through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit telling him, yes, it is. So write these things to prepare these exiles for how hard it's going to be. We look back and we say, oh man, it was hard on them. Jesus Christ already told Peter it was going to get hard. In John 21, verse 17, Jesus says to Peter, this is one of the last conversations we hear that Jesus has with Peter before Jesus ascends to heaven. And he says to Peter, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself, and walk where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Is that, that's kind of insidious, isn't it? Is that insidious writing? There, there's, all, there's almost an undertone, dark tone there. When you were young, you did what you wanted, but when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands. And we know in Peter, for Peter, according to church history, Peter was crucified for his faith. He did stretch out his hands, and they were nailed to a cross. And they told him, we're going to crucify you. And church history says, I don't want to be crucified like Jesus. I don't deserve that. So crucify me upside down. And church history tells us that Peter, before he was crucified, he was nailed to the cross. His family was killed in front of him with swords. And then he was put upside down and he died on a cross, his hands being stretched and his, himself being carried where he didn't want to go. And we have this in scripture. This he said, Jesus said, 
to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And then after saying this, he said to Peter, what does he say to Peter after saying this? Follow me. So here's the deal. If you follow Jesus Christ, things may get worse. Now you can go to a hundred different churches that'll tell you the opposite. They'll tell you, follow Jesus Christ, you get richer, you get a better looking wife, you get better kids, you get a better house, you get a better job, you get a better car, all that and more. Now, put money in the offering so I can buy another plane for myself. You can go to all kinds of churches where they'll tell you that. But when Jesus said, if you want to follow me, he didn't promise the sky. In fact, what he promised was one thing, he promised suffering. And Jesus himself said, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to take up your cross, which is exactly what Peter had to do. Take up your cross and follow me. In fact, Jesus said, in this world you'll have suffering, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So just like Jesus did for him, Peter is doing for these exiles. He gathers them around, him, around himself almost and writes them this letter from his heart, gives them the final thoughts on what is important when suffering comes. Suffering is coming. Don't lose faith. Stay strong. Suffering's coming. Don't lose faith. Stay strong. That's why he starts in 1 Peter verse 4, in our passage today in verse 12, 1 Peter chapter 4 verse 12, he starts, Beloved, Oh, you got to read this. you got to read this. It's, read it with me, okay? Here we go. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. How many people expect to suffer for following Jesus Christ? Go ahead. Raise your hand. Go ahead. All right. You should, because that's exactly what that verse says. Again, if, if you came hoping to get another house or a better looking wife, you're in the wrong place. But if you came to hear the words of Jesus Christ spoken to Peter and Peter speaking to us through the power of the Holy Spirit, it's very clear. Do you know what fiery trial actually translates from in the Greek? Actually, when you read that, it means hot ordeal. Have you ever had a hot ordeal? Like after you eat too much Mexican, have a hot ordeal. <laughs> this is literally, don't be surprised at the hot ordeal when it comes upon you. Or it could be translated, the burning. As culture changes, we shouldn't be surprised when you get burned for our faith. And some fires, some hot ordeals are hotter than others. You may, how many people think that Nazi Germany was a hot ordeal for Christians? It was. About... One million estimated Christians were killed for their faith in Nazi Germany. But that's not the worst of it. Between 1917 and 1915, the Russians wiped out 15 million Christians for their faith. Between 1917 and 1950. In communist China, between 1950 and 1980, 700,000 Christians were killed for their faith. And today, you may not know this because it's not talked about in the news, but you should know today about 100,000 Christians are killed annually, yearly, for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, if you want to dig up information like this online, it's there, but you've got to dig for it. Because our brothers and sisters around the world are going through an incredible amount of suffering, particularly for their faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, 
More Christians have been killed for their faith in the 20th century than all of human history combined. That's our world today. This is what was beginning in Rome for these people calling themselves Christians. And Peter is saying to them, listen, you may have been kicked out of your homes. You're facing a growing culture of hostility and anti-Christianity. You're losing your job opportunities because they know you're a Christian and they think that you're a non-conformer. They give you a label. You're judgmental. You look down on others. You don't play well with others. So you're losing job opportunities. The more you call yourself a Christian, the more you're going to stand out. And the more you stand out, the less comforts, less perks you're going to get in this life. Now, as I'm speaking to you, I hope that you're thinking the same thing I am, that this doesn't sound all that unfamiliar. In Peter's day, this was just beginning. And Peter is trying to get them to get the idea in their heads that when suffering comes, faith grows. It gets stronger. I wonder where we're at in the USA today. I wonder where we're at today. I wonder if we're at the beginning of something. We know, according to the book of Revelation, that persecution is going to get very bad for Christians. We know that day is coming. I don't know when it is. I don't know that beginning of it. I don't know what, what is going on. But in the USA today, we actually have it a lot easier than a lot of our brothers and sisters around the world. I do know that. Naturally, like you probably are doing right now, you're probably thinking to yourself, and they were thinking back then, why should Christians go through all this suffering? All we do is love one another. All we do is give to one another. All we do is we just want to love the world around us, right? Why then are we in for all this suffering? Peter picks up on this in the same verse. Read, keep reading verse 12. Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal when it comes upon you. Next three words, church, what are they? To test you. This is the same terminology he uses in 1 first, uh, in, in first Peter 1, verse 6, right when he starts the letter. He says, In this you, rejo- you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Same word. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor of at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Church, we are tested as believers to see if our faith is true. We are tested as believers to see whether our faith is true. Psalm 66 says this, verse 10, For you, you, O God, have tested us. You have tried us like silver is tried. Where does our testing come from, church, according to this verse? Our testing comes from? God. Our testing comes from God. Our fiery ordeals are permitted, allowed, or ordained by God. And the purpose of all of it, I don't know why individual you go through the struggles and the trials that you go through or I go through, but I know ultimately somewhere way down at the bottom is so that my faith can be tested to find out if it's true. Testing is made to See how genuine or strong our faith is, especially when it needs to be. So the question we should be asking ourselves is, how will I respond when my testing comes? Testing is not meant to make us weaker. It's meant to make us stronger. 
The test is not, by the way, when we lose health or our body issues or our comforts from home. Those are, those are inconveniences. Those are challenging. Believe you me, I shared one with you when I lost my gallbladder this year. They are no fun to go through. But these kinds of testings are far more painful because they last longer. This is the testing when it comes to somebody challenging our faith and we lose relationships because of it. My pain will go away after a while. But those relationships may never come back. And that hurts. So how do you react when somebody attacks your faith? It amazes me, even this morning, it amazes me how often we spend our time, and there's nothing wrong with this, praying about our physical maladies, our physical ailments. And and there's nothing wrong with that. But I wonder how many more times we should be praying about our spiritual health rather than our physical health. We did a, I do a prayer, uh, a prayer reminder at the bottom of all of the CGs, like community groups. When you get together and you do community groups, I put a little prayer request at the bottom there. And one of the latest ones I did was, I put a prayer request there for our young adults, our college kids. And I, I asked you to pray for them that they would go to campuses and their faith would remain strong. Because you probably already know this, and if you don't, you've been living under a rock. But one of the main goals of any teacher on a college campus, on a secular college campus, is to get your kids to deny the faith. And so our prayers, as much as for our physical well-being, needs to be for our kids, needs to be for us, that our faith would stand strong when it comes under fire. I think I told you the story before, and I don't have a lot of time to, to, to tell it, but I even took some classes on a college campus uh, some, uh, some higher-level cl- uh, classes, and ran into a professor who told me she would be actively against any attempt I had to enroll in the doctorate-level program at that college. Because she found... I didn't tell her I was a pastor. God forbid, I don't want to let that cat out of the bag. But every paper I turned in came from a conservative viewpoint, came from a, came from a biblical viewpoint. I didn't deny my faith as I did my homework, and my class was on ethics. <laughs> so all of my ethics come straight from God. So I handed in the paper. She saw that. She made an appointment with me and said, Craig, you need to know, you'll never, you'll never get into the program here. I think, I think of myself, it's good that I went through that because it gives me a whole new appreciation of what challenges our young people go through. They want to make good, good grades, but if they stand up for Jesus Christ, they may not make good grades. If they run into one of these proud professors who think that the world turns on their opinions. It amazes me how often we're concerned about our, our, our physical health even more than our physical health. Peter always connects his thoughts on suffering with, with these ideas on how strong our spiritual health is. And one of his favorite people that he keeps going back to each chapter is Noah. Now, Noah was a quintessential exile. Noah was a crazy guy down the block who was building a boat in his backyard because he said water was coming from the sky and nobody has ever seen rain before. So he said, so much water is coming from the sky that we're all going to need to get on this boat and God told him, 120 years before the rain came, God said, you got to build a boat. Let's call it an ark. Make it big. Make it big, not so that you can get all the animals on board, but make it big so that lots of people can be saved. Did you know that? God's goal wasn't to save the animals. God's goal was to save the world. It's always been that way. That boat was big enough to hold thousands of people. 
75 years it took him to finish the boat. Ark. Let's call it an ark. 75 years. And for 75 years, after, after God told him that the rain was coming, after God told him to start, start the project, after God told him, tell your neighbors, tell the, t- make sure that they know, t- use every spare time, piece of time that you have to tell people there's a flood coming. We got to get people to repent and be saved. And he did for 120 years, 75 of which he built the boat. 120 years. And in the end, he saved eight people. Eight. There's lots of room on the boat, but only eight were saved. He was told by God to behave a certain way. He was told by God to to obey and build this boat. He was told by God to live a certain way, and he did. In fact, the Bible calls Noah a man of faith. Every day he did what God commanded him to do. Every day believing that God would send rain and water from the earth and rain from the sky and flood the entire planet. Every day he believed that this would happen. And every day he demonstrated his belief by pounding on another peg and cutting another piece of wood. Every day. I'm positive Noah was maligned at least one day out of those 120 years. In fact, I would say that he was probably maligned a lot. But he was told to behave this way, to build this ark for the salvation of souls. And the irony is, Noah was tested by fire long before he was tested by water. He was in the fire of testing over the faith that he had in God. Can you imagine building a boat for 75 years? Have you ever done one thing for 75 years? Every day he gets up, looks at the blueprint, and pounds another peg. I can't even, I love fly fishing. I don't have the patience to tie a fly. And he built that. The only reason he did it is because that was his mission by God. And he was faithful every day to the mission God gave him. Believing that God would save souls if he did what he was commanded to do. The test is not whether we, when we lose our comfort or deal with health issues. It's whether our faith will hold up against the onslaught of those who mock us or malign us or make fun of us for our faith. That's the test. How to react when someone t- attacks your faith. What do you say when somebody questions God's goodness because of a fiery trial you or they are going through? How do you react when your church family doesn't support the stand you take for Jesus Christ? How do you react when your friends mock you for defending your faith? How do you react when your work demands you to do something that denies your faith? Where will you stand when courts tell you to deny your faith and conform to culture or lose privileges? You see, church, we need to expect these fiery trials. Jesus said it himself in John 15 and verse 20, remember the word I said to you, Jesus said, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also, what church? If they persecuted me, they're also going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they would keep yours also. 
Too often we sell Jesus' blessings, but we ignore this reality of the suffering that he promises. It's like this, it's like this, this picture that, that I, I was introduced to a couple of weeks ago of, of these martyrs, and they were, they're thrown into the Colosseum, and they're going to be eaten by lions. And, and at the bottom we write, you know, these poor martyrs are going to die for their faith. And then at the bottom we write, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs> well, that's the plan he has for your life. We so often sell the blessings and we forget to understand we will suffer because of our faith. Jesus promised it. Christians here in our world today expect no conflict with regards to the faith. And maybe we've had it too easy in America. Listen, feel free to take this literally. Take up your cross and follow me. Expect suffering when you follow Jesus Christ. In fact, I would also venture to say, when you don't experience suffering, maybe you need to reevaluate whether or not you're actually following Jesus Christ. Because this is the promise. Follow me, and you will experience suffering. What does God find when his eyes land on you? Listen, church, the world today needs an ark. The world needs an ark, an example of true faith. We don't stand out to make a judgmental point. That's not the, po- that's not the, the, the goal. The goal is not to make a judgmental point. The point that we're making is we love people too much to not stand out. Judgment is coming. I don't know when. You don't know when. But it is. Death may hit them before judgment arrives. Either way, people need an ark. Suffering is not a result of God's anger with us. It's just normal if you're following Jesus Christ. Verse 13, but rejoice. Get this now. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter had every right to write this because just a couple of years earlier, Peter was preaching after Jesus had died, risen from the dead, and ascended into heaven. Peter was preaching in a city where the governor told him, stop preaching. I'm done. Stop that. And guess what Peter did? He kept on preaching. He kept on preaching. So they arrested him. They threw him into jail. And they thought to themselves, he has so many followers in the city. We can't keep him in jail. We can't kill him. So what what will we do? We'll just beat the living tar out of him. So they did. They beat the living tar out of him. And they sent him on his way. And you know what the verse in Acts says about how Peter felt about that? Here's what it says. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus Christ. Now that's faith. Wouldn't you say that that's faith? Wouldn't you say that that's kind of like whacked out crazy, like big time faith? So Peter speaks with conviction when he says in verse 14, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit and the glory of God rests upon you. Literally it means insulted for Christ, blessed. And then it says the spirit of the glory of God rests upon you. You know what he means by that? What he's talking about is the Shekinah glory of God. If you know your Old Testament, that's exactly what he's referring to. He's saying, when everybody around, when the the, the temple was lifted up and carried by these Israelites all the way through their 40 years of wandering, remember this? And they'd set up the temple, and then the Spirit of God would come down and rest on top of the temple so that everybody around could see fire by, by night, 
cloud by day. It was called the Shekinah glory of God. If you wondered where God was, follow the cloud, follow the, the, the fire. That's where you knew where God was. Peter dips into that when he says to us, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Why? Because the spirit of the glory and of God rests on you. Isn't that cool? Everybody around that's wandering aimlessly in the world should be able to look at you in your suffering and be able to say the Spirit of God is over there, is on that house, is on that family, is on that person. We are lights for the gospel of Jesus Christ. The light shines up best in the dark. Verse 15, But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. In other words, you're going to go through suffering. Make sure you're not going through suffering for the wrong reasons. <laughs> if you murder somebody, you're probably going to suffer. Don't blame that on God. If you steal stuff that's not yours, you're probably going to suffer. Don't blame that on God. Don't suffer for the wrong reasons. That's why he says, yet, verse 16, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in the name. You are beloved because you bear the name. Not because you were born from his bloodline, but because you were reborn into his bloodline. You have the blood of Jesus Christ if you know Christ as your Savior. So rejoice in that. In fact, Christian, this word Christian is only used three times in the New Testament. Here's one of them. Only three times. The writers are careful before they use these, th- this word. Do you want to know why? Because it, it was a Roman thing to do. The Romans would look at somebody and they would say, oh yeah, yeah, you're a follower of this person, so we're going to call you this group. The Herodians, have you heard of them? They get referred to in the New Testament, the Gospels, all the time. Do you want to know who gave the Herodians their name? Herodians were follower of? Hey, you're getting it. Herodian, I get this wrong. Herodini were followers of Herod. You had Augustini. Those were followers of Augustine. And then you had Christiani. And those were followers of? Christ. Peter says, listen, if you're suffering as a Christian, rejoice that somebody's calling you a follower of Christ. That is your pride and joy. That is your stake in this world. That is what should be our main goal in life, is for people to look at us and say, man, you must be a follower of Christ. That's where the word Christian comes from. We use it so easily today that we miss the emphasis of it. But church, I'm here to say, being called a Christian is a privilege. People are saying we are followers of Jesus Christ. We remind them of Jesus Christ. We act like Jesus Christ. We love like Jesus Christ. We look like Jesus Christ. Can I give you a better compliment than that? So you glorify God. Why? Because you're identified with the name Jesus. Glorify God as one who's suffering in the name of Jesus. Verse 17 is the key verse. For it is time for judgment to begin where, church? That blows me away. It's time for the judgment to begin, not in the world. It's time for judgment to begin where, church? In the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? God is allowing, permitting, ordaining suffering because it's, fine, it's time to find out who is a follower of Christ and who isn't. 
who bears the name of Jesus and who doesn't. God allowed a lot of things to test the church, to refine it. We can even call it judgment of the church because churches that water down the truth to get more participants eventually lose. I'll say that one more time. Churches that water down the truth to get more participants eventually lose. God upholds the arks, but he shoots boats that are already leaky. God doesn't need churches that are watered down. Want to know why? They won't stand up in suffering. They'll suffer and they'll throw in the towel. They'll suffer and they'll change. God upholds boats that are built strong on the gospel and will not change. Because God is a God who saves, not a God who conforms. He upholds arcs. He lets leaky boats sink Watch to see if those who call themselves churches become arcs or put holes in their own boats in an effort to conform to culture. When the emergent church started, you probably don't even know know what the emergent church is, but it was a movement about 15 years ago. And when it started, it was big time scary for all other churches. And here's why. And it's still a little bit popular today, but not not like it was. It was. It was off and running in a big way. Emergent church was, was kind of like, let's just conform to everybody, make everybody feel welcome, bring them in. And it was all about saving souls, but it was all about putting holes in your boat. You conform to culture in the hopes that you can rescue people, but a boat with holes in it is going to sink. They were interviewed, one of the leaders of this group, on his views on homosexual marriage, because that was a hot topic at the time. His answer was this when he was interviewed on national TV. His answer was this, we're going to wait seven years and find out what culture does on this issue, and then we'll decide where we will stand in the emergent church. The emergent church has sunk. Started off strong, a little scary to gospel-preaching churches, but a waste of time. God upholds arcs. Listen, have you heard that the Pope wants to make an 11th commandment? Have you heard that? It's been in the news. I don't know if he was joshing about it. I got to think that he was. But he wants to make an 11th commandment, something about, you know, loving the planet and taking care of it, which is, by the way, what each one of us should do, because that's one of the first things we were tasked to do at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, take care of the planet. But we don't worship it as Mother Earth. It didn't birth us. Forget that. It's not our Mother Earth. God is our Father. The Earth is our gift. From our Father, we take care of it for that reason. If you start thinking the earth is worth more than God is, you've got a brand new God. That's the problem. So he wants to make an 11th commandment. I want to tell you, (laughs) read the last chapter of, of Revelation. It says, if anyone adds anything to this book, they're going straight to hell. If you don't believe that, read the last book of Revelation. It's wonderful. It's good, good nighttime reading for your kids before bed. Bottom line is, God is going to judge. God is going to bring a flood. It's all there listed out for us. And he'll start by judging the church, not because we've been bad, but because we need to be strong. He's looking for solid arcs that will hold up against the waters of conformity. He will test our faith like fire. And the question is, will our faith stand? He will test our church with fire. And the question is, do we really walk what we say we believe? Are we going to be an ark, or are we going to be a boat with holes in it? 30 years after this writing, John the Apostle, 
through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote the book of Revelation. Do you know how the start of Revelation starts? Seven churches. Seven, ch- seven churches. <laughs> seven churches are evaluated. They are judged. Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 3, seven churches are judged. And almost all of them fail. Every one of them are commended because they're standing up against suffering. But almost all of them fail the judgment because they've shot holes in their boats and they've given up doctrine. They've given up belief based on what is happening in culture. And so God in the first three chapters of Revelation talks about these seven churches and uses words like, you better repent. You better remember where you came from. You better turn and do a 180. Sometimes he even says, wake up. And one of the churches, the church at Ephesus, which by the way, Ephesians is an incredible book, 40 years after Ephesians was written, they are talked about in the book of Revelation. And God says to this same church, you know what? I'd rather you weren't around. I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Do you know what that means? I'm not going to visit you anymore. How'd you like to be in the church at Ephesus? Churches with leaky boats are lukewarm. Revelation 3.16, neither hot nor cold, and God has no use for them. God uses suffering to test churches' metal. And a church that does not stand up for the truth or live out the truth will not stand. Persecution will come through the world. It always does. But testing will come from God. God needs to have a solid faith. Verse 18, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know what that means? This is the truth. Some churches God can count on, and some churches he can't. There's no hope for the ungodly without the pure gospel preserved in the church. And people of village, you should know, we are affiliated with village church because we believe firmly that the gospel is our only hope. And our goal is to preach it, preserve it, (laughs) and get people to follow it. Go grow and overcome. Keep the gospel pure. The culture needs your ark. So he finishes with this word in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their soul to a faithful creator while doing good. You're going to suffer. Keep doing good. Number one, so what? God is doing something good through your testing. Trust him. Don't be surprised when bad things happen. Keep doing good. Be relentless in doing good. Some key phrases for exiles. Number one, and these are all in the, in the chapters. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised. If you do your work for Christ, expect people to come at you. If you raise your children for Christ, expect people to come at you. If you share the gospel for Christ, expect people to come at you. If you love your wife or your husband for Christ, expect people to come at you. They're not going to understand. Expect it. Don't be surprised. Number two, it's not strange. Tests are not strange. Tests benefit us. They show progress. We know that we're growing because we have faith to be tested in the first place. They give us a measurable scale. Are you the same faith you were last year? You better not be. You better be stronger in your faith this year. They give us a measurable scale. And you'll know how you're growing through the suffering and how you go through the suffering. Number three, they offer evaluation. You understand how well you did on the last level. 
So maybe you'll do better on the next. And the fourth one, I love this. They provide a unique way to bless others. You go through testing so that you can be a blessing to others who are going through testing. We help others. Another phrase I love is rejoice, you are blessed. <laughs> Isn't that awful? So you're suffering, rejoice, you're blessed. <laughs> Sounds like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Like, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake. Your suffering is proof that God is changing you and God wants to use you. Your suffering is proof that you have the metal to be an ark that God can use. That's why he says in verse Peter 1, verse 6, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, may be found to praise and glory and honor of the revelation of Jesus Christ. Number two, the world needs an ark. Oh, for God's sake, the world needs an ark. Culture will demand conformity from you and conformity from your church. Resist the natural urge to conform. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. They are going in one direction. Don't follow them. I heard of a church even in our own city. Another one that is putting holes in their boat because of cultural demands, and they will not survive. If persecution is close, churches to become more focused, not more watered down. Be an ark. When judgment comes, listen, brothers and sisters, church, when judgment comes, for God's sake, don't paint your boat to look like the water. If you paint your boat to look like the water, the people who are drowning won't know where the boat's at. You want to paint your boat to look different. The waters of judgment, that's why Peter keeps dipping into Noah. You like that pun? That's why he keeps dipping into Noah. It's because judgment is coming. Starts in the house of God so that we can build a boat that is strong and secure. Not full of holes. One that will hold up against water. And one where people will be saved when they swim. They won't swim into more water. They'll want something with a distinct contrast to the water all around them. Jesus said in Matthew 28, uh, 24, verse 38, For as in the days, Jesus dips into Noah too. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They didn't know what in the world was going on. They were loving life, sucking the marrow out of life, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them away. So will the son, coming of the Son of Man be. When you yield to cultural demands for your church to change, you stop being an ark. You start being a leaky boat. Peter uses Noah because he was a quintessential exile. He did not participate in the violence and sexual immorality of his day. Like Peter tells us to in the previous verses we talked about, be different. No, no drunkenness, no behavior like the world around you. Noah did build an ark to provide salvation, like us. We want to do things that stand out. Not because we're being judgmental, but because the world needs an ark. Noah was maligned by his culture. They didn't understand why he was behaving so differently, but he did not break and he did not bend. He was faithful to what God told him to live like. Why? Because the world needed an ark. 
It's interesting in Matthew 24. If you go back a little bit at the beginning of this conversation, you'll find out that Jesus started talking about Noah and the need for an ark, for the church to be an ark, for his disciples to be arks. He starts in the beginning of chapter 24 by talking to his disciples. And the way that this conversation starts is it's a private conversation. See that? He sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him how? Privately. He usually was talking to masses. Not this time. He was only talking to his disciples. And you know who one of his disciples was? Peter. Peter got this information. Peter is dipping into this same analogy when he writes his letter. He remembers that Jesus said, the days of judgment are coming. The world needs an ark. Be an ark. In fact, Matthew 24 and 1 Peter 4 are almost identical. The only difference is, Peter is not whispering to just the disciples. Peter is proclaiming it to the exiles, to the churches, because judgment is a lot closer. Private conversation between Jesus and the disciples, it wasn't time to make this a public conversation. But the time at church, the time has arrived. It's time to make this a public conversation. The world needs an ark. It needs your family to be an ark in your community. It needs our church to be an ark in this community. We don't want to be painting our our boat to look a lot like the world. We want to be starkly different, not because we're trying to be judgmental, but because people need to be saved. There were thousands of people that could have made it on that ark. Only eight made it. So church, I want you to do something. Look all around. See all these empty chairs? See them all? We need to put more out. Because there's a lot of people who need to hear the truth who are not getting it anywhere else. But they will, I promise, as your pastor, they will get it here. And my goal is, hopefully before my time comes, which I don't know when that will be, is to make sure that this church, my family, your family, is equipped to build a solid ark. You don't take anything with you. Only the people you lead to Jesus. That's it. Be an ark. Let's pray. So Father, we come to the end of this message and Peter's wrapping up. I know he's thinking a lot about what you taught him and a lot about what he wants to share with the exiles who are about to go through some suffering, they had no idea. They were already in it. They had no idea how bad it would become. And Lord, the fact of the matter is we don't either. We don't know how bad it's going to be. We know that our brothers and sisters around the world are already suffering for the name of Christ. We forget about them a lot. Some of us may not even know about them. But it's pretty evident that we live in a world that demands conformity. So Father, help us to live out our faith faithfully. Help us to protect the gospel, not only in the way that we preach it, but also in the way we live it. May we be an ark that stands in stark contrast to the conformity of this world, the sea of people that look exactly and think exactly the same. May you call us to know areas of our lives that we need to stand out. May we love one another as you loved us. 
May we surrender to one another, yielding. May we love those who are hard to love and accept those who don't look like us. May we fill this church with more exiles. May you work through us to call more to yourself. And Lord, may we, our families and our church, be the proper ark that you need us to be at the time we need to be it. So Father, I pray that this message lands on hearts in a powerful way. May we indeed be different than the way we came in this room. In Jesus' name, amen.